the ride-sharing infrastructure at Lyft has a high volume of traffic that is mostly handled by servers on AWS. When Vicky Chung joined Lyft in 2018, the company was managing containers with an internally built container scheduler. One of her primary goals in the company was to move Lyft to Kubernetes. In today's episode, Vicky gives an overview of Lyft infrastructure and the core engineering challenges within the company. One subject that she touched on was the network communications between the user on a mobile device and a cloud backend. And this was a topic we explored in detail on a previous episode about Envoy Mobile with Matt Klein, the challenge of having network devices, mobile phones in this case, that have network connections that may be unreliable creates interesting design challenges all throughout the system. Vicky also discussed the broader Kubernetes ecosystem because she often goes to KubeCon, and I've seen her give talks there. And she also discusses her time at OpenAI, where she managed infrastructure deployments for scheduling large machine learning jobs. Software Engineering Daily has partnered with SafeGraph for the SafeGraph Data Hackathon Challenge, we're giving away $4,000 in cash prizes, as well as SE Daily and SafeGraph swag. SafeGraph is a geospatial data company, which curates a data set of more than 6 million points of interest, and SafeGraph provides a high volume of location data. You can use that data to build apps and data science projects with that data. And if you've been looking for a creative opportunity to explore large data sets, particularly with the potential to win $4,000 in cash prizes, this is a great opportunity, and the hackathon is hosted on Find Collabs. You can enter by going to findcollabs.com and signing up. Vicky Chung, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. You joined Lyft in 2018. What were the most problematic infrastructure challenges when you started at the company? I would say that... Well, this is probably biased by my role, but I was hired to migrate Lyft to Kubernetes. At the time, I would say that challenges came from the company having outgrown a lot of the infrastructure, like foundational pieces that they had. The company just grew very, very quickly. This is probably like a typical startup story. Like, you know, they were super scrappy in the beginning, just built whatever was like needed to ship the product. And then sort of just like organically grew from there and just never had time to really like overhaul the systems. And so it was sort of at a time where they were really outgrowing both in scale and also just like in the number of engineers that were like using the systems. And it was like really painful. And I could sort of like describe the uh, stack a little bit if that's helpful. Please. <laughs> yeah. So like pre-Kubernetes, Lyft ran on just like raw EC2 instances running salt. And that was like great. It was like really fast iteration cycle. And all the engineers had a lot of autonomy to configure the stack however they wanted to. And this also sort of like supported our microservices architecture really well. And all the services used Envoy. And I think the challenge came from sort of like having... By the time we, I joined, we had maybe like three or 400 microservices. So you can sort of imagine like there are a lot of, a lot of different resources that we were creating on AWS and it was like becoming pretty hard to track and also really hard to sort of make sweeping changes to the entire fleet. 
Another thing was we weren't using containers in production. And so it just was a lot of overhead in terms of like the amount of infrastructure knowledge that an average backend engineer at Lyft needed to know to like do their job well. And that was when we decided to introduce containers and also Kubernetes to sort of help abstract some of the more complicated lower level stuff away and hopefully help the org move a little faster. Had Lyft been watching the container orchestrator wars and just opting out until there was a winner? Uh, Yeah, that is a great question. Yes. So Lyft had been tracking the entire ecosystem pretty closely. And when I joined, actually, I guess like a little bit before I joined. So I guess I want to say when I joined, Kubernetes was maybe like 1.7 or 1.9, something like that. So before that, like maybe a year or two before that, Lyft had the engineering team at the time had made an effort to move to containers without Kubernetes. And I don't know if like you remember, but like, you know, two years before that, there wasn't really a clear winner in the space. It was sort of like, oh, you could use Mesos or you could like chance it with this Kubernetes thing that was like sort of still a baby. And there was also like Docker Swarm and, you know, a lot of other like players in that space. So I think a lot of what other companies started doing was like writing their own container orchestration layer on top of like Docker containers. And so Lyft did that as well. And what happened was like, it was sort of rolled out to development and testing, but it was never rolled out to production. Sort of like the team decided to wait for a more community supported platform to do a real production rollout. So, Right. So this was the, to give listeners context, if they didn't, if they weren't, you know, developing backend infrastructure around that time, there were a lot of people who had built programmatic infrastructure with this generation of tools where you could script your infrastructure, the infrastructure as code tools, whether it was Chef or Puppet or in your in Lyft's case, Salt. And you could you could basically write code that would spin up your EC2 instances or whatever cloud instances you had. And and that was really great for a while until we started to realize the problems of this imperative coding for infrastructure. And then people decided that they wanted to have declarative structure or more declarative infrastructure. And that was around the time when there were all these container orchestrators that were open source and some that were closed source that various companies were working on. And it was a messy time because it was a huge investment to go into one of these things until Kubernetes won and you know became a much easier choice. Do you have a perspective on why Kubernetes won? Was it something superior in the infrastructure, in the architecture, in the marketing, in the evangelism? Why did Kubernetes win? <laughs> I want to say the when I first looked into this space, it was probably four years ago, a little bit over four years ago. I was just starting at OpenAI at the time. And we were building our infrastructure from scratch. So we were like a new company. So it was like blank slate. And we looked at all the options that were on the table. And we ultimately picked Kubernetes. And we sort of like reevaluated, you know, every few months. And we stuck with Kubernetes over my time there. And I think... The reason why we did that and also probably resonates with other people who made the same choice is even though it's still like relatively young, 
I think the reasons why one, it has a very strong community backing and, you know, you could call it marketing initially from Google or whatever, but ultimately the community really, I guess, grew really strong over time. And I think the architecture is also like, I, I know a lot of people complain about like Kubernetes being like pretty complicated, but I would say for the amount of work that it does and for the functionality that it provides, the architecture is actually relatively straightforward to understand compared to a lot of the other orchestrators in the space at the time. And it was sort of like, you know, we had a very, very light infrastructure team. It was like two people. And Kubernetes was the one that we felt confident that with two people, we could operate this thing and be in production and be okay. You know, when we looked at like Bezos or some of the other things, we thought that um, that was maybe a little bit too operationally intensive and like that we didn't feel quite as confident in like handling that with a small team. How has Kubernetes changed the way that engineering works at Lyft? I think it really, well, one, I think it helped define sort of the interface between the infrastructure team and the service teams. I think prior to you know, containers and Kubernetes, you know, the line was like very fuzzy. All of our engineers could change the salt code. So they, you know, could run whatever they wanted to on the EC2 instances. And you know, obviously there's like some amount of like base layer that the infrastructure team provides and is like reviewed by the infrastructure team. But for the most part, they're like very empowered to own their infrastructure. And I think now it sort of like gives a clearer interface between the two orgs. I think another thing is that's sort of like a side benefit is that because it's open source, a lot of documentation can be Googled. So, you know, the support burden is not just on the infrastructure team. If like back when we had our own in-house stack, basically every question comes to the infrastructure team because you can't Google for like, oh, how do I run this command? And I think like it being an open source thing, one, like people can look for documentation, but secondly, like there are engineers that we hire from outside who have experience with Kubernetes. And so they don't need to be like onboarded onto this platform. They can just like start at Lyft and go. And I think third thing is like, and maybe tying to like your earlier question of like why Kubernetes is I think the Kubernetes API is very easy to work with and it's very good. So it's like pretty straightforward to sort of like build our own tools on top of Kubernetes and, you know, make the tooling or the user experience better. And so, yeah, I think it's sort of sped up the infrastructure iteration cycle and yeah, a good common interface. Can you describe how platform engineering teams and individual service teams work at Lyft and how they interact with each other? Yeah, so my team is, I guess, I guess it's the platform team. So we develop and manage and operate our Kubernetes platform. And our service teams are, they own their own microservices. And so they own everything sort of like, down to, I guess now they're on Kubernetes. So they own everything sort of like running in their container. And the interaction, basically, I guess like the agreement is sort of like, we provide a 
platform that conforms to like Kubernetes and runs containers and, you know, everything below that layer we own and manage and we help them sort of have a platform that works out of the, the box for any Lyft conformant services. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does. So are there instances where if I'm a, let's say I'm a service team, I've built the, I don't know, the pricing service. So my service calculates a price on a Lyft ride whenever a, a rider makes a request to Lyft. Are there days when I'm going to wake up and I'm going to come into the office and the infrastructure that I'm building on has been updated and improved by the platform infrastructure team or whatever the name of your team is? Yeah. So that does happen. For example, we have... So every service deployed on our Kubernetes clusters have a number of sidecars attached to them. So there are a number of ways in which the infrastructure can be updated without sort of any work from the service teams. One way is if the sidecars are updated. So one of the sidecars is, for example, Envoy. And if the networking team pushes a new version of the Envoy container, then all our services sort of like over time get rolled over to the new version, which means that they get a new version of Envoy automatically. And that doesn't require like any work from the service team and they might not even notice that it's happened. This also happens with sort of like underlying nodes. We update our Kubernetes versions pretty uh, continuously to pick up any like patches and security updates, etc. So we do roll our clusters and nodes, you know, almost weekly. And I think for the most part, the service owners won't notice. We drain our nodes gradually, and then they get scheduled onto new nodes, and uh, the old cluster slowly gets killed. So, you gave the example of Envoy. So Envoy has been widely used in different circumstances as a quote unquote service mesh, or at least as the substrate for a service mesh. Can you tell me how Lyft has used Envoy, how extensively it is used beyond the initial use case of just being a service proxy? Do you use it for any of the quote-unquote service mesh purposes? I guess we mostly use it as the service proxy. I think the way we use it is like all the inter-service communication goes through Envoy and we use it for like service discovery and also i guess all the traffic coming from external traffic endpoints gets into envoy mesh and then gets proxied to our services i think one cool way that we've been using it is because we've used it before kubernetes we sort of leveraged it as a way to like seamlessly migrate some of our services onto kubernetes without having i think a lot of other companies sort of move on to Envoy as they move to Kubernetes. And so they have to onboard their sort of like shift their traffic both into like the cluster and into the mesh. Because we were already running Envoy, we could just like very seamlessly shift traffic in and out of our clusters. And it just all appears as like normal Envoy traffic. So I think I know a lot of the like newer maybe service mesh do sort of like maybe fancier functions. I don't know. Maybe that's what you're referring to, but I think we do use it for like, basically it, it runs Lyft. It, like, yeah, we use it for everything. And you mentioned that 
a given service, so in this hypothetical pricing service, for example, there might be multiple sidecars attached to a service. How many container sidecars might be attached to an average service? Can you tell me more about what those sidecars are doing? Yeah, depending on the service, we might have, I think, up to five sidecars attached to it. So we have Envoy, which is running the proxy. We have a stats sidecar that's forwarding all the stats. I think we also have optionally a log forwarding sidecar. And I don't even remember some of the other sidecars. I think we have some like analytics sidecars for like events. But yeah, so the way that like services get deployed is that they can sort of like flag or opt out of sidecars and Otherwise, we give them the default set of sidecars, which is like Envoy, Logs, and Stats. What's the process of deploying a new service at Lyft? So we have sort of these like standard service templates that help generate new services. And then I guess like the first step is you sort of like pick what stack your service is going to use. Are you going to be like a Python or Go service? And depending on that, you might have like different generators. Let's say I'm generating like a new Python service. So there's like a template and it like gets automatically populated. And then maybe I'll like add some API endpoints. And then I can just like deploy all our deployments go through Slack. So we just like go on Slack and sort of like deploy the service for the first time. And then the image gets generated, and we also automatically generate the Kubernetes objects, and then it gets deployed onto the cluster. This is sort of like a simplified version of that pipeline, but that's the gist. Now that you've been at Lyft for two years, what are the canonical engineering challenges to the extent that you understand them? Are, are there some particular challenges that you think are characteristic of Lyft, problems that will arise in different forms within the company for a long time? Mm, That's a good question. I think one thing coming into Lyft that has been interesting is testing end-to-end has been interesting because like, Lyft is a pretty stateful service compared to a lot of other services. Like you can be in a ride and then the ride has like different states that it is in. And so we have, for example, we've developed all these tools and services to help us test these things, like to help simulate rides, for example, in like staging and in production so that we can always be testing all these like different states that our clients can be in. And I think because of that, it does present a lot of challenges when we're developing new features or like writing new services is that just being aware that there are a lot of statefulness to the data. Yeah. Do you mean statefulness in the sense that on an average ride, for example, you just have a a user that is moving through the world physically in a ride and that ride has state the user is accruing more expense over time or you know the the ride is moving through space is that the kind of state that you're talking about yeah you're sort of like basically there's this like i see as a massive state machine then you're sort of like moving through different states you know you're like requesting a ride and then it gets dispatched and then maybe you get matched and then you're finally like moving in a ride with the driver i think that does 
there are like a lot of edge cases to that. You know, if the driver cancels, what happens? And so there's, I think that does make sort of like testing trickier. And I think another thing is like, you know, we have all these, you know, we're dealing with all the real-time updates from all the mobile apps. So dealing with sort of like low connectivity is another interesting problem. It's kind of like not in my team's domain or wheelhouse, but I think that's another interesting thing that we always test for. Yeah, we did an Envoy Mobile show with Matt where we touched on some of that. It, that does seem like another one of these canonical problems is the interacting with the mobile infrastructure that has ephemerality. So is Lyft still entirely on AWS or have you moved into other clouds or on-prem infrastructure? I don't know that I can say specifically, but we're not exclusively on AWS. We're, I think we're primarily an AWS shop, but we do have things running in other clouds or well, so yeah, and some a little bit of like on-prem stuff. Do you have any perspective for like let's say hypothetically I am building a big company on AWS and basically I want some minimum degree of failover into a multi-cloud scenario. What are the areas that are most critical for me to insulate? What should be my multi-cloud strategy? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> I think the first thing to figure out is sort of like what you're going to do with your data. Right. Are you going to like replicate the data across different clouds or are you going to like keep them in one place? And if you do, then you're like, I guess, not effectively like highly available. So sort of like deciding if you want to be like active, active or active, passive is um, maybe the first step is like how how much you want to be replicated. And another thing is like sort of connectivity between the clouds, how crucial that is, because there's a lot of like tricky parts, like connecting things between the clouds. Like you have to get a lot of times you have to get like fiber from like telecom and then it's not like super straightforward and it can get pretty expensive. And a lot of times it's not clear if like if the interconnect goes down, like which end is down. So there are a lot of questions that need to be fleshed out and also like how things fail and what happens when they fail. I guess like that's a pretty like big and vague question. So <laughs> I agree. Don't I don't be know charge. like how deep to go into it. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> okay, more specific question. Uh, I don't know if you can answer this one. Do you use any cloud cost management systems? So we have our own uh, in-house built wow. one. Yeah. So we do use. It's based on the data from AWS and. Because we do attribution by like by team or by project. So we do have our own labeling on our jobs and then our in-house system will scrape the data and you know, it has like a nice dashboard and everything and we can sort of like see real time um, how much each team or each project is using. That whole space of cloud cost management, it's kind of interesting because there are so many of these companies. I, there, I, I must have seen... 10 or 20 cloud cost management companies at the various conferences I attended in the last year or two. Do you think this is, is this an area like logging where there's just going to be multiple winners or do you think that it's going to consolidate into somebody that just dominates at cloud cost management? Yeah, actually 
That's a good question. Like, I think I especially saw a lot this year at KubeCon, I guess, because Kubernetes gives people a nice API to sort of like scrape the data and give a nice cost dashboard. But I don't think there's like a clear winner. I'm not sure. I guess there is opportunity for there to be one. Yeah, I think a lot of people I've talked to, though, sort of like have their own in-house one just because of like there's a lot of specific data that like each org or each company wants right now. And a lot of those other solutions are newer. And I like, I guess that's, uh, I haven't looked too deeply into them, but I think some of their sort of like pricing models are interesting as well. Like some of the ones I've seen are like uh, some sort of like percentage of um, your cloud cost, which seems like it's maybe counterintuitive because then our incentives aren't aligned. <laughs> like I want to save money <laughs> and you want me to spend money. True. So you go to KubeCon and I go as well. One of the things I like about KubeCon is that there is this meeting of the minds of different kinds of companies. So for example, you have people from Lyft mixing with people from an insurance company that's 100 years old that has layers and layers of legacy infrastructure because they're 100 years old. Lyft has its own legacy infrastructure because it's, you know, not the you know youngest company in the world anymore, but it's all post-cloud. What's your perspective on the Kubernetes-related problems that these pre-cloud, these older enterprises are having compared to the Kubernetes problems that a company that is younger, a company like Lyft, is having? So I think there's like a number of different ways, depending, I guess, on what they came from. I would say one is like a lot of the Kubernetes materials or like conversations have been very, well, cloud native, I guess. And so like if the older enterprises have their own like data centers or colo, maybe that's a little bit less relevant. And so they have their own set of challenges sort of like deploying Kubernetes onto their data center with like a very static fleet. And then they also have questions about like whether they should move to the cloud. So I think that's sort of like one big fundamental difference. And I think a lot of conversations, I guess this year uh, or like last year, <laughs> have been on like development or like user experience. And so a lot of the conversations have been on like matching user experience to like maybe what people were used to before or just like making cloud native um, usable or user-friendly. And I think maybe some of the workflows are different between like traditional enterprises and like more like newer startups that have have been on the cloud from like day one. So I think that's maybe like another difference. I think a third would maybe like less about the like age of the company, but maybe more so about the type of company they are is like I sort of see a lot of more traditional enterprises as having businesses that need more um, security. And that's sort of like have been a big focus at KubeCon last time is like security or like regulation or governance um, clusters. So I think that's another one that's jumping to mind right now. Do you have a perspective for how the different cloud providers 
are diverging from one another? Or do, or do you feel like they're just trying to maintain feature parity with one another when you look at AWS, Google, Azure? Oh, well, I think Azure have been sort of like leading in terms of like making everything super user-friendly and you're just like abstracting away everything that's underneath and just being like, okay, here's the Kubernetes API and this is what we provide and manage. I see AWS as like sort of trending that way, but like not quite as drastically or aggressively as Azure. I think Google has, you know, they're obviously like the most experienced in running Kubernetes. And I think they're sort of maybe more in the middle, like not, you could use Google as like a sort of, oh, abstract everything away sort of way, but like, again, not quite as extreme as Azure, I think. What kinds of custom tools or platforms have you built on top of Kubernetes at Lyft? I want to say like we've built a number of like platforms on top of Kubernetes. I'm not sure if like that's what you're asking about. So for example, we have like our own machine learning platform running on top of Kubernetes that provides like interface for our machine learning scientists. And that's entirely sort of like running on Kubernetes. And we have other sort of like developer tooling, I guess, built on top of Kubernetes. Um, Not sure if that's what you're referring to. Yeah. Can you say more about that? So is it something similar to to Kubeflow or is it just completely homegrown? Yeah, it's completely homegrown. I think it started around the time when Kubeflow was like, maybe before Kubeflow or when Kubeflow was like very young. And I'm sure we're not the only company that has built a platform like this, but it's sort of leveraging the flexibility and uh, speed and scalability of Kubernetes to do machine learning training. And so gives a pretty like user-friendly interface for our researchers to like start any experiment they want to, and then it just spawns jobs on the cluster. So the auto-scaling that you want out of machine learning training, that's what it makes simpler because you need, uh, you know, do you maybe need to spin up a lot of servers to parallelize the training or something? Yeah, I think there's that. And there's like this flexibility that is uh, that you get from using containers because when you're training experiments, you know, you're using um, very specific libraries to help you sort of define your model and your training. So rather than sort of like asking the infrastructure team to go install all these like libraries to the machine and make sure it's all the right version and they're all compatible and everything like you can do that in your container image and then you just tell the orchestrator to like go run this like a hundred times or something and I think it empowers the users a lot more to sort of experiment and play with what jobs they want to run and also now they can sort of like scale easier without again without the help of the infrastructure team. Before you worked at Lyft, you worked at OpenAI. How do the machine learning workloads that you see compare between the two organizations? Yeah, I think, well, OpenAI didn't have a production environment or like a traditional production environment. You know, we weren't really like a service or we didn't have a product. So I think that's one difference is Lyft has to tackle a lot of the problems that come with model deployments and model version tracking And I think some of the things that are shared are sort of reproducibility of experiments is 
one thing that I think both organizations benefited from in switching to like containers and you know having immutable images and infrastructure. It makes uh, experiments rerunning a lot easier. And I think OpenAI had so OpenAI was a hybrid cloud environment. So that's another big difference is we were running Kubernetes across our colos and we were also running on all three clouds. And so it was just a much more varied environment. The fact that you were not operating services that had to respond to user requests on an active basis at OpenAI, how does that change the nature of the company? Because that's something that's different than, like, I can't think of another company, <laughs> like another mainstream Silicon Valley company that has that feature. How does it change the nature of the organization? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we could go really deep into this, like, question alone. In terms of the infrastructure, there's a number of, like, interesting differences, I think. One is, well, maybe, like, this is sort of the experience running um, batch workloads in a company like Lyft as well, is they're sort of more episodic, right? Like you sort of start your job or your experiment and then there's like a clear end to that job. It makes migration of infrastructure a little bit easier, in my opinion. It's still not easy, but like just because like there's a clear start and end and when you start a new thing, you could just run it on the new infrastructure. It makes things a little easier. It also makes reliability a little easier to like sort of think about. Like I could have... You know, I could take a cluster down and spin a new one up and just ask people to like run their experiments on the new one. So as far as like infrastructure goes, I think that's a little bit of like leeway that we have uh, when we're running these like more batch type workloads. Give me a few lessons in engineering management that you've learned at OpenAI and Lyft. Let's see. I think the two companies are like pretty different. OpenAI was like a lot scrappier. And I think the, I guess like there's always this maybe challenge when you're running infrastructure is sort of like your team's relationship to the rest of the engineering organization, because you're sort of running a support organization and you want to make sure that the relationship between the two sides is healthy. I've definitely seen infrastructure teams where like the relationship is like maybe like not so good or like even toxic and so like we were pretty mindful of that and i think it's even harder in open ai to sort of like maintain that relationship because not only were we supporting the rest of engineering but there's also this question of like engineers supporting researchers and like there are these two different roles and they're like cross-functional and like how to make sure that the two groups respect each other and I guess it's not really like there is a really like a silver bullet, but just some things I found that helped build empathy between the two groups is to set up regular communication or forums between the two groups to like let people talk face to face. I think a lot of times when people only interact with your infrastructure team through like support channels, it can feel very impersonal, like they're only talking on Slack or something. And a lot of sort of like emotions or like tones get lost. So sort of encouraging a lot of these like in-person interactions really helped. 
another thing is like, especially with the researcher and engineer divide is having people shadow each other or like, you know, even just embed in each other's teams really helped with that, like empathy building. I think a lot of engineers didn't understand the complaints that researchers had until they like actually sat with a researcher and understood like, oh, this is why the infrastructure is painful. So those are, I guess, like tips that I learned. (laughs) I don't know how much you have looked at the state of academic research or corporate research. Do you have any perspective on whether OpenAI is perhaps maybe a structure or a model that other domains could follow? Because I think there are, I just hear from scientists that are at least in academia that that are a little bit frustrated with the incentive structures and they feel they feel pretty hemmed in although i realize open ai is is a very specific kind of organization so perhaps it's not the most replicable thing but i don't know if you have any thoughts on that area yeah i'm not sure that i know enough about academia to comment on it i do think that i guess like open ai's structure is very good for like experimenting with maybe riskier ideas or, you know, giving people a little bit more freedom to experiment with, you know, many different research directions. Totally separate question. Do you have any, well, I I know that you joined Lyft in 2018. And so I I imagine the the firefighting was much less than some of the, uh, some of the earlier stories I've heard, but do you have any good firefighting stories from, from your time at Lyft or, or experience responding to tough incidents? Oh, actually, yeah. So this is like, I think this is is a a pretty interesting one because actually we had similar experiences at OpenAI. So on our machine machine learning cluster, we sort of like implicitly, well, we used to anyway, like implicitly trust our users to um, start their experiments like without a lot of constraints on like how much they could use. So I think there was one time when, so the way that a lot of them start experiments are like they have a, like a Python notebook or like a Jupyter notebook and they sort of like explore the data from there. And then once they've decided on like, okay, what features they're going to use or what type of model they're going to use, then they like start their experiments and they just like start the experiments directly from the notebook. So they may be like, write some for loops and loop through some of the data and launch experiments that way. There was one time, I think, sort of like late at night when one of our researchers wrote a loop and then, you know, and then uh, they went home and it ended up being like an infinite crash loop. (laughs) And so like eventually it sort of like it paged the machine learning team first and they like wasn't sure what was happening and they like couldn't access the cluster anymore and then it paged my team and we were like oh that's weird like the control plane got overwhelmed and went down and sort of like that was the initial symptom that we saw and so we just like brought the control plane back up we were like hmm it just seemed like etcd got like overwhelmed let's just like bring it back up and then as soon as it came back up like within a couple minutes it like went down again and we didn't like I think our initial suspicion didn't go to just like something within the cluster was like spamming the cluster. Yeah, uh, after we brought the control plane back up, like, you know, another time we were like, okay, this is like something's fishy here. And then we started looking at the objects that were like 
in Kubernetes and then we realized the pattern and then we found the job that was spawning all these things. And then, yeah, and then we killed it. It was fine. But it was like pretty funny because for a while, like the team was like, are we being like DOS? Like what's happening? So one of the episodes that we did with Matt Klein from Lyft was when he talked about a problem of human scalability, which is this idea that hyperscale companies can sometimes have very difficult operational problems that cannot necessarily be solved with technology. Have you encountered any of these at Lyft? Yeah, I think there's a lot of sort of operational or like support that our infrastructure team does. And maybe that's overlaps with like some of what Matt was referring to is like, as we've grown, the infrastructure team has to support an entire like engineering organization. And over time, that sort of like adds up time on the team. It's like when somebody comes and asks like about their job failing or their deployment failing, like stuff like that, it all little bits of time here and there adds up. And then also sort of like operating a cluster that's, you know, running four or 500 microservices. That's a lot sort of like broader of a scope than you know, what it used to be. So last question, how do you anticipate the Kubernetes ecosystem changing in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think maybe this is like a little bit of a personal wish as well, is I think the ecosystem is maturing. I think a lot of the basic functionality is there and the pain points I see people having right now is like, okay, now that we're running Kubernetes in production, how are people developing on Kubernetes? And that's sort of like story that's not super fleshed out yet is like, what is the user experience? It's like pretty um, steep learning curve right now. And it's not super integrated into people's like development tooling. So I think that's going to be an area that's that needs to be answered. I think other sort of like polished things are, yeah, security and governance. Like those are all things that as more mature companies are adopting the platform, they'll need uh, to figure out solutions for. So, Well, Vicky Chung, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. 